This morning we will be looking once again at the Gospel of Luke, specifically the seventh chapter as we take the middle section of that chapter number seven. Our text this morning will be Luke 7, verses 18 through 35. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Praise be to God. For giving us his word. Luke chapter 7. Verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves not having been baptized by him. To to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say... He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. 
Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask You this morning that You would bless us by Your Word. That as Your Word goes forth, that in accordance with Your promise, it will not return unto You void. But rather, O Lord, we ask that Your Word would take deep root in our hearts, that it would change our minds, that it would focus our wills upon You, O Lord. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke. We have seen our Lord teach in the Sermon on the Plain. And then just recently in this chapter, earlier on, we have seen Him do mighty deeds to heal a man on death's door. And then even to raise another man from the dead. This is the height of what we see in the work of Jesus. How marvelous it is to see Jesus at work with power affecting people's lives. But this week we come to verse 18 and a story in which John the Baptist reoccurs. And this is also the reoccurrence, if you will, of real life into our story. Real challenges, difficulties, in the midst of the Christian life. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is something that we face each and every day. Perhaps you need to go back to the very first days in which you heard of the Lord Jesus Christ, you trusted Him by faith, and you expected that that was the hardest thing that you would have to do in the Christian life. After all, you have to have a completely different mindset. And even the Scriptures tell us that is a journey from death to life. We figure we're on the other side of that. Now everything will be smooth and easy, right? Did you think it would be that easy to live the Christian life? Perhaps you thought it, and then when you were faced with reality, you wondered whether you were even a Christian or whether God was real. You see... These are the challenges that come to us. We experience this even in our own lives. As we graduate from school and we get set to go to college with all sorts of plans in our minds and we assume that we're going to set the world on fire. And then we find the person to spend the rest of our lives with and we get married and we think, now everything will just be good and easy. There's two of us. We'll do all sorts of great things for God and and we'll raise children and and they'll be perfect. They'll be be Bible memorization machines and, and we'll do things with them that other people don't. Oh, they'll pray all the time. They'll always behave. Oh, our lives will just be perfect. And then reality interjects, doesn't it? In the way of diaper changes, sickness, disobedience, in your own sin. And you wonder whether you can do anything right and you wonder whether you are off the rails and whether all is lost. This morning is a story like that that brings hope for those of us who struggle with the Christian life. Because you see, there is one here who has doubts. One here that Jesus tells us is the greatest of all men at this time. And so this morning what we see 
is Jesus working with his disciples and especially with John. First and foremost, by answering doubts. Because you see, even John has doubts. And then second, we see Jesus affirming the messenger, John himself. And then finally, we see him analyzing the hearers of his message. And we see in which there are always two sorts of people who hear the message of Jesus. Answering doubts, affirming the messenger, and analyzing the hearers. Well, let's begin then by looking at the doubts. In verse 18, we see that John has disciples, and they report to him all the things that Jesus has done. Now, you can imagine, they report that Jesus is is teaching, he's healing. You could even imagine, he's raised someone from the dead. This is very exciting. And John is listening to this. But there's a problem that's come up. It's the same kind of problem that you and I face as we live the Christian life. We read in the Scriptures of the power of God's grace and what God can do and how He translates us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And we hear about how the power of God is all over His creation. And we come to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and we are excited and we look around us and what we see is nothing changes. The stock market still goes up and down. The same sort of politicians seem to rotate in and out of office. We still have to pay the mortgage every month. We still have to drive to work and work the same old job. If Jesus makes such a difference, why is my life such the same? Now, you can imagine John's mentality in this. As he hears of Jesus raising someone from the dead, and he looks around and he says to himself, then why am I still in jail? Nothing has really changed at all. The Romans are still in power. The Pharisees are still pressing down on the people of God, still laying burdens upon them of rules and regulations that they themselves don't even feel the need to keep. And Herod, the wicked king of the area, not only is he not fallen, he is living it up, feasting while John starves in prison. John, even John, has a doubt. So he asks a very specific question. You can almost imagine he's thought about this well and he has written it down perhaps or rehearsed it well with his disciples because they go to Jesus and they repeat the question exactly word for word. There is no paraphrase here. They go to Jesus and the question John has for him is this. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Now, this is John, the one who saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Behold the one whose sandal I am not worthy to unlatch. The one whom after he baptized, the heavens parted, and the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I have well pleased. If anyone should know the answer to this question, it's John. Now, this is a great comfort for you and for me. 
Because if we have doubts when sickness hits, when trouble comes, there is a sense in which we are in good company. John knows far more than we do. And he still has his doubts. He wants to know, are you the one who's going to change everything? Because Jesus, I'm looking around here and I don't see much changed. You see, John, even though he's a Bible person, is like you and me. You see, circumstances can bring about doubt in our hearts. For John, he has done exactly what the Lord has asked him to do. He has preached God's word with power and authority no matter what. It has actually landed him in prison. We see that in verse 18 through 20 of chapter 3 of Luke. He's in prison for speaking God's word to the authorities. And in this circumstance, you can just imagine, he looks around at the walls that contain him and he asks himself, where are you, God? I thought you wanted me to do great things. I thought you asked me to be your servant, your prophet. Why am I languishing here in prison? Have you ever asked that question yourself? I won't ask you to raise your hands to embarrass you. I won't ask you to answer audibly. But in your heart, have you gone through a struggle and just looked up and said, Where are you, God? I believe, but I don't know if I can take this. Why aren't you changing things? Why aren't you helping me? Why aren't I experiencing your power? Our circumstances can bring doubt into our lives. But on the other end of the spectrum, so can our expectations. You see, John knew the promises of God. He had studied the Scriptures. What he had brought to the people were the promises of God. And he told others that what the Messiah was bringing was salvation and judgment. He was coming with the Spirit and with fire. And you can imagine now, as John looks out, he says, where's the salvation? Where's the judgment, Lord? You told me you were going to bring it, but it's not here. And you see, for us, as well as for John, we expect our lives to live out in a certain way. We might not have a formula for this, but we expect that if we are loyal to God, if we read our Bibles, if we pray and we do the right things, that God is somehow obligated to bring good things our way. Or at least things that we expect, things that we desire. When those expectations aren't met, it can be disheartening, can't it? You see, at the end, what happens is we expect God to do what we want. And when it doesn't work that way, we're afraid that God is absent. John has doubts. And he asks Jesus, are you the one? Now, one thing that I am very grateful for in John, not only does he tell us of his doubts, but you see, he gives us something of critical importance. When we have doubts, John tells us exactly what to do. It's to follow after him. 
In the midst of his doubts, what John does is he seeks Jesus. He goes to Jesus. He doesn't try and hide his doubts. He doesn't suppress them and say, you know, a good believer like me shouldn't have doubts. He doesn't try and pretend they're not there. He takes them to Jesus. Because you see, John does not want to give the enemy of his soul space to attack him, to make that doubt grow, to make it flourish. He says, I've got to do something about this. It's churning me up. I've got to go to Jesus. And he does so in such a way that it even seems to us silly or foolish. How could John not know that Jesus is the one? John had pronounced him the one. But you see, he goes to Jesus. Is that what you do with your doubts? Or do you try and find comfort elsewhere? Do you try and find comfort in affirmation and affection of your spouse? In the obedience of your children? In the praise at your job? Or when you have doubts and face difficulties, do you take them to Jesus? Because that's what John calls us to do. And look at how kind Jesus is. Do you see what happens in the very next verse, in verse 21? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases. Now, it doesn't say a week later, after a season, in that very hour, they are asking the question, and it's almost as if Jesus says, I'm going to give you my answer and my answer in stereo. Look. And he begins healing all sorts of diseases, casting out demons, giving sight to the blind, doing works of power and might. But you notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't answer simply in a way to try and please John. He doesn't change his message. He doesn't change his purpose simply to comfort John. No, he continues going on in that which the Father gave him. He doesn't say, oh, well, John, I'm sorry that you're doubting and depressed. Let me throw Herod out of power for you. That will cheer you up. I often think that we would like that kind of a response. That as we pray, we would like Jesus to kick some people out of power. We would like Jesus to do certain things with our economy. We would like Jesus to fix our marriage lickety-split. But that's not how Jesus answers. Because you see, Jesus' work is His work. It's the work of the Father, not our work. And so He begins acting in a significant way, freeing people. He frees them from the ravages of disease. He frees them from the power of the enemy. He frees them from blindness. But there is one thing that he does not do. He doesn't free John. John's still in prison. But Jesus has given John the comfort of knowing not only that he is at work, but that that work rests upon the very Word of God, the Word that John has held so dear. These aren't merely powerful deeds that Jesus is doing. They're founded upon God's promises. This is not like Jesus just sat down and said, well, you know, what could I do to cheer John up? Well, I could heal that guy. I could cleanse that leper. Oh, I could give that guy sight and that guy hearing. No. You see, each of these things that Jesus is doing, and as he recounts them, are actually gospel promises. 
They come from a book that John would know well. The book of the prophet Isaiah. We're in chapter 26, verse 29. Isaiah says that when the Messiah comes, the dead shall live and their bodies shall rise. And in chapter 35 of Isaiah, that Messiah will bring his kingdom and then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. In chapter 29, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. You see, everything that Jesus is saying is a fulfillment of the prophecy that the Messiah would come. He's not just healing. He's not just cleansing. He is saying to John, I am the one. And God's Word proves it. Not your circumstances. Not even my bare word. The prophetic Word of God agrees with me. In Isaiah 61 The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. But interestingly enough, Jesus does not complete the quote from that verse. He leaves off to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Because you see, Jesus is not about to free John now. He's not actually about to free all the captives now. That will come at a much, much greater price. The price of his own blood and life upon the cross. In the same way, we hear the words of Jesus and we rest upon him. For you see, Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We cannot judge Jesus by our circumstances. We cannot judge Jesus by our expectations. We must trust Jesus for our salvation. We must not be offended or ashamed at him. No matter what our lives are like, we are called to trust on him. This is how Jesus answers doubts. The second thing that he then begins to do is to affirm the messenger. You see, he has answered John's doubts, but he doesn't want the crowd to think that somehow John is lost or that John doesn't understand. And as soon as the messengers leave, as soon as the disciples leave, he begins to affirm John. I find this very interesting that the Lord Jesus praises his servant when he's not there to hear it. Is that interesting? I'm sure many of us would rather be there to hear it, right? We long for that day where we have that Bible promise where it says, well done, my good and faithful servant. But you see, it's not about us. It's not about the praise we get. This is not merely to make John feel better. This is to establish that John is indeed the prophet of the coming kingdom and that the world is changing because of what Jesus is doing. He asks the crowd, what did you expect to see when you went out? He asks them, you're here now. When you went out into the desert, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a reed blowing in the wind? Did you go to look at some scenery? You know, desert vogue. Or perhaps you went out to see that easygoing, 
could care less guy like John. Right? You know what that's like. We can't all be as flexible as John, can we? Well, that's foolish. John is the antithesis of flexible. He set his mind like flint against the enemies of God's Word. Well, what did you go out to see, says Jesus? Someone who has soft clothing. You know, like a shirt of hair with a belt of leather. Maybe someone who is eating fine food in a palace. You know, fine food like locusts and wild honey. You see, Jesus is challenging them, saying, you did not go out there to see the man. You went out there for the message, didn't you? And he is my messenger. John may have had his doubts, but his life shows otherwise that the doubts were for a moment, but his faith in Jesus Christ carried him through all of the challenges of his circumstances and failed expectations. John is indeed a prophet, isn't he? Jesus says, you went out there to see a prophet. No, 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 more than a prophet, greater than a prophet. Jesus' language is evocative. The very first word of the sentence is greater. Greater than a prophet is John. He's brought you God's word. But he's more than that. He is the forerunner of the change in the world, of the kingdom of God coming to be amongst you. He is the one who announces the kingdom. He is the one who has fulfilled yet another prophecy in Malachi 3. That He is the messenger that goes before the face of the Messiah. John is worthy. Jesus says there is no one born of woman greater than John. Now stop and think about that for a moment. He's greater than Elijah who raised people from the dead. He's greater than Moses, who saw God's back parts, as it were, and led Israel up out of slavery. He's greater than David the king. He's greater than Isaiah, or any of the other prophets. What does Jesus mean by this? It becomes even more curious when he says, He is the greatest born of woman, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than He is. Now, that seems odd, doesn't it? You see, what Jesus is saying to you here today, if you know Jesus Christ by faith, as weak as you are, as pitiful as you feel, as helpless as you seem, you are greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because, you see, it's not about us. Those who follow John are greater because the kingdom is here. Because Jesus has changed Everything. It is not because of the skills we have. We don't reign better than David. We don't proclaim better than Moses. We don't heal better than Elijah. But we see the kingdom in our midst and Jesus at work and the world will never be the same again. There is a great shift underway. Jesus is the difference. And because of that, We are blessed. But when this message comes from a messenger, there are always two reactions. And only two. 
And Jesus shows us this as he analyzes the hearers before him. There are those who agree with God, and there are those who find fault with God. Those are the reactions that come to the gospel. And first we see Jesus speaking of those who agree with God. In verse 29, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now, one thing I want you to notice is those who agree with God are not described in great detail. It's actually the Pharisees and the lawyers that get far more text in our passage this morning. They're described as simple. Because, you see, it's not about who they are. They are the poor who have the gospel preached to them. They are the wicked I mean, you can almost hear the crowd gasp as Luke writes, and when the people heard, and even the tax collectors heard, they justified God. You know, the people that are known for wickedness. They're poor. They're wicked. They are unconnected. They are unimportant. But the thing that they have is they hear the word of God and they agree with God. It is all about who Jesus is and what He has done for them. He is the one who has brought about the kingdom. He is the one who makes us great. And all we need to do is agree. And that's something that even the smallest amongst us can do. Some of you here are six or seven or eight or nine. And you wonder what you can do for the kingdom. Jesus tells you. You can agree with God. And what does that mean? It's not that hard. It's saying that God is right. And more than that, personally, that God is right about me. You see, because if we're honest with ourselves, it's much easier to say God is right about those people out there. God is right to judge them. God is right to speak against them. They're sinners. Even the Pharisees would go that far. But you see, those who say God is just are willing to say God is right about me. I am a sinner. I need grace. I don't have it all together. If you knew the reality of me, you wouldn't want to be around me. You're right, God. Have you made that second step? Because you see, that's the step between death and life. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins are willing to look at others and say, God is right about you. But it's only by the power of the living Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that we are able to say, God, you are right about me. I need forgiveness. I need hope. I need life. Agreeing with God. And it's not just something we say, you see, because Luke tells us these who agree with God, who say God is just, They were baptized with the baptism of John. Now, this is not some kind of magic water. It's not some kind of special rite that we need to introduce here. 
We have baptisms and then we have baptisms of John too. No. What the baptism of John was, was a public declaration in front of others that God is right, that I am a sinner and I need to repent. It was a declaration of repentance. You see, because if we're going to say God is right, we have to be willing to say that publicly. We have to be willing to stand with Jesus even when it's uncomfortable. And it's uncomfortable not just because others don't like Jesus. It's uncomfortable because we have to face up to who we were without Jesus. Are you a person who repents daily? Do you seek forgiveness from the Lord and from others around you? You see, Christians are not perfect. But they are people who repent daily of their imperfections. There is a second kind of hearer here. And it's not those who agree with God. It is those who find fault with God. There are others who do not agree. And they are described here as the Pharisees and the lawyers. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves and were not baptized. They rejected the idea of repentance and therefore they were not baptized. They said, we don't need this. We don't need God's verdict. God is not just if He says we are sinners. We are not. We don't need to even be friends with sinners. We know exactly what we are doing. We understand and we read God's Word. And if anyone deserves heaven, we do. They wanted to be accepted on their own merits. Because of that, they rejected the revealed will of God for themselves. Now, why do some reject? Some because they are unwilling to give up sin. And if we're honest with ourselves, that comes to us too, doesn't it? We don't really want to give up lying or stealing or gossiping. We want to be able to keep those things and still somehow get Jesus. Some reject because of the opposite reason. They think they never sin. They are self-righteous in themselves. They have it all together. Others reject the Lord because of bad theology. They don't understand the nature of sin and the depth of sin and they minimize it and they reject the need for repentance and forgiveness. And then there's another rejection that hits close to home here in the pew. It's that they become so familiar with the things of God that they take it for granted. It becomes background noise. It's not heard. It's the things we do. We go through the motions. And if we're honest with ourselves, as we here gather together in the house of the Lord... This is what we face as a temptation of going through the motions because we know we ought to. You see, at its core, those who reject the purpose of God simply want God to, well, working off the words of Jesus, dance to their tune. 
Jesus points it out to them. He says, you know, you all are like a bunch of children. You know what they do. Well, back in these days, children didn't play cowboys and Indians or cops and robbers. What they would do is they'd play weddings and funerals. And they would go out into the marketplace and say, we're going to play a wedding. You be the bride. You be the groom. Let's play the flute. Everyone dance and be happy because we know you have to be happy at a wedding. Oh, no, no, no. Now later, let's play funeral. You be the grieving mother. You be the pallbearers and we'll play the dirge and everyone has to be sad. And you see, what Jesus says is, you want everything to be according to your want. When you want to be happy, you expect God to do things. When you want to be sad, you expect God to play along. But you see, the reality of it is, you reject God in total. When God sent you a man preaching holiness and repentance and judgment, you said, oh, he's just a bit too odd, isn't he? He's not quite all there, is he? He's just so gauche. I mean, look at how the man is dressed. And what he eats. And then the Lord sends Jesus preaching forgiveness and and joy and peace in God. And then you don't want that. You say, oh, what a glutton. What a drinker. Oh, and he's such a friend of sinners. Ew. You won't have it either way. There's great irony here. Because you see, they reject Jesus. They say he's a glutton and a drunkard. Something that according to Deuteronomy 21 would get him stoned as a judgment. And they say he's a friend of sinners. We don't want anything to do with him. And the irony is, is that they are sinners who need that friend. If you know you're a sinner, are you seeking out this friend? For Jesus is the friend of sinners. Well, in conclusion, I have to tell you that doubts will come into your life. Maybe some less, some more. But they will come to us. We can't all be John the Baptist. The question that comes then are, is it, it's so easy to be critical of others. And when those doubts come, how will we handle them? Will we suppress them? Will we focus our energies upon others? Or will we seek the Lord Jesus Christ? For you see, the answer is to be found in Jesus' last statement here in verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Because you see, wisdom is to trust in Jesus. Wisdom is to know that He is indeed the friend of sinners. Sinners like you and me. Will you be wise today? Will you seek out the Lord Jesus Christ? He is the friend you need. He is the one who can answer your doubts who can carry you through your circumstances, who will show you that the expectations you should have should be the ones that He has declared in His Word. He invites you to trust on Him, 
to be his friend. Sinner though you are. Let's pray.